Hello and welcome to the 102nd episode of the Town Hall Academy. We're going to tackle a very tough subject, addiction. Now here's a taste. Is, is there something going on that, that I can help you with? Is there something we should be talking about? And if you've got enough, if you've got, a, if you or your manager, in my case, it's a manager, has a good enough relationship with that uh, employee, usually it's going to come out or they're just going to mask it and, and, and play the denial game, which eventually you're going to have to call them on it anyways, right? Welcome, automotive aftermarketers, to a Remarkable Results Radio Town Hall Academy. Listen to learn just one thing from today's episode on your journey to remarkable results. Carm Capriato here with a discussion you must hear. On our panel is two former addicts and two that have been involved in some capacity with an addict. The four panelists are all aftermarket professionals, and I want to thank them for their transparency and honesty to help tell an important story of addiction, recovery, and support. I want to thank the supporters of the Town Hall Academy, Jasper Engines, and RepairPal. Your customer's old engine, you know, is going to wear out. And when that day comes, Jasper will be the name to remember. Jasper's remanufactured products cost considerably less than a new vehicle, so it just makes sense to choose Jasper for your customer's drivetrain needs. After 10-plus years in business, RepairPal has become the nation's largest network of independent auto repair shops. Their certification program ensures that customers who go to RepairPal certified shops will receive quality, trustworthy repairs. Find more information at RepairPal.com shops. Hey, are you not listening on a mobile device? You can find a list of mobile listening apps on the website on the apps page. There you can not only download my own listening app on your Android or Apple device, you can discover another 12 sites that offer the podcast. Learn to enjoy the remarkable content on your commute. Hey, the views and opinions expressed are those of my guests and do not necessarily reflect advice or solutions to any specific problem or situation. Please consult a professional. Hey, so glad you're joining other aftermarket professionals on this learning highway. Our intention is to help bring fresh and innovative discussion to inspire and grow individuals and companies. Now, if this episode hits you in a way, please share it with a friend. Now, here's my panel. Matt Fonslow, the Diagnostic Tech and Shop Manager at Riverside Automotive in Red Wing, Minnesota. Eric Ziegler, a mobile diagnostician, owner of Easy Diagnostic Solutions in Peoria, Illinois, and instructor for automotive seminars and the Drivability Guys. Rob Rosell, owner of Family Auto Service, a four-shop group in La Mesa, California area, and author of the book, Addicted to Life, How I Went from Homeless to Extraordinary Success and Happiness in a Short Period of Time. And also with us is Tanner Brandt, owner of Tanner's Auto Clinic, a mobile diagnostician and programmer and an instructor for CTI. By the way, you can find Rob Rosell's book on the website's books page, and the show notes can be found at remarkableresults.biz slash A102. We cover a lot of ground in this episode that will open your eyes to addiction, including living life without, the law of exposure, the way out, the reward system, opioids, alcohol, and other addictions, and the signs of relapse. Here's a myth. People who struggle with addiction come from a bad or broken home and have no support. And here's some truth. Until an addict says, done, no one can help them. Your heart may say you're done, but your actions must demonstrate it. You know, at least one-third of you have a life's experience with addiction or have a close friend, family, or significant other who is struggling. Use this episode to bring in your desire to help yourself or someone you love. With addiction. Listen, I'm honored to have my guests that are going to bring 
their own life's experiences in either addiction or in supporting uh, addiction. This is going to be a topic that I think hits the hearts and the, the souls and the minds of many people, not only in our industry, but, but in life in general. Uh, let's just jump in, and I want to give each of my guests an opportunity, three minutes or less, to explain why they're here and why this, they're going to bring a ton of value to everyone. Matt, I'll start with you. My idea was fueled by a hire we did a few months ago. Uh, he came in, interviewed, and felt uh, the desire to tell us that he had been fighting an opiate addiction and was on a um, a MAT system where he's receiving medication-assisted treatment. And when he told us that in the interview, I said, good for you. And he broke down crying because that had never happened before. Usually when he tells people that, the immediate response is, well, why don't you just stop? Hmm. And that led me to talk to Carm um, quite a bit. We've, we've spoken extensively about this, but I think it's a very important topic. And that um, my involvement in the addiction community is that I'm not really an addict. Uh, about five years ago, I asked a girl uh, on a date. Oddly enough, she said yes. So mental illness, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, yep. <laughs> I learned that she had, she was uh, fighting a uh, opiate addiction and, uh, a year in she had a relapse. I thought I understood what addiction was. I, I had this yeah. notion that I knew I understood what addiction was, that it was a lack of willpower. And I had to go on a journey of discovery, not saying I got this stuff figured out, but I have a much, much different idea of what addiction is than I did. And I feel like my contribution today will be to hopefully change people's perceptions of addiction. So you're what's called a normie. I am. Yeah, that's what the addiction community, at least that I'm involved in, calls me. Uh, I forgot to mention during her recovery process, she joined a recovery community and at a soiree, a get together, a mixer, I was talking to another normie and I was kind of working on their perception of addiction because they were under the same impression I used to be about the willpower and the president or yeah, the president director of this community uh, overheard it and invited me to be on their board of directors. So I've been on that for three years. Yeah, wow. three years. Excellent. Hey, thanks, Matt. Great, great update. Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Eric. Okay. Well, my name is Eric Ziegler and I am a grateful recovering uh, addict and alcoholic. Um, my life story is similar to many in the repair community. I, you know, never sought out being a technician as kind of uh, a means to an end. It was just always part of who I was. And back mm -hmm. in the day, so to speak, everybody that worked on cars kind of work hard, play hard, kind of uh, um, of a certain generation to where like working on cars and drinking beers and stuff like that was cool. I think I knew at a very early age, I probably knew in, when I was 10 or 11 years old that I had a problem with alcohol and uh, it just kind of progressed. I, uh, I've been in some rather low places in life. Um, I just always just had always seen myself as a work hard, play hard kind of person, uh, you know, work all day, then go to the bar, um, change jobs pretty regularly, several DUIs, gone to jail, things of that nature. And um, my mother got involved with Al-Anon um, 
years before I quit drinking. And at 20, I was in an alcohol-related accident at, when I was 23 years old. And I broke both my legs uh, in half. And I was trapped in a car for, 20, uh, for six and a half hours in 26-degree weather, inverted uh, with the compound fracture. My left leg had not only ripped through the backside of my wow. um, skin, but it ripped through my blue jeans. So I actually tied tourniquets for six and a half hours, laying inverted while screaming uh, for somebody to find me. It took them two and a half hours. The engine was actually sitting next to me inside the the car and um, took them two and a half hours to extricate me. I spent a year in a wheelchair and uh, learned how to walk again. They told me I'd never, probably never walk. If I walked, I wouldn't walk normal. And if I would never work again as a technician and everybody says, Oh, that's when you quit drinking. And I was like, Oh no, three or four more DUIs after that. So as they say, cunning, baffling, powerful, indeed. Um, I quit drinking on uh, a weird 15 pound bet, but uh, you're waving the pen. So I've gone over my three minutes, I think. But thank you. I mean, there's so much more you can give, but thank you for kind of, if you will, setting the stage, Eric. Thank you. Rob? Uh, Rob Roselle. I live in San Diego, California. I uh, was living on the streets homeless and toothless and unemployable in 1999. Stumbled into a 30-day rehab and have not picked up a drink or a drug since that time. About a few months after checking out of that rehab, I walked into an auto repair shop uh, looking like a crackhead still. A lot of my teeth still missing, and uh, an auto repair shop owner hired me and mentored me for four and a half years how to manage an ethical auto repair shop. Uh, four and a half years later, I bought my first store. In 2004, 2010, bought our second store. 2014, bought our third store. And 2018, opened our fourth store. And you know what? You did it in three minutes, but it's the story is almost worth an entire episode, Rob. And uh, I started to read your book, and and I will tell you what a great book. I couldn't put it down. You've got this gift of just keeping the reader engaged. So right on. Well, uh, thank you. For maybe that. we can share how people can get that book later. Okay. Absolutely. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Tanner. My name's Tanner Brandt. I live in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, my ties to this episode is I grew up with a sibling that struggled with alcohol addiction. Uh, from the time she was 18, she's five years older than me. So that meant I went through most of my high school career having to deal with the side effects that it causes on a family member. Uh, if you've ever seen the show Intervention and seen the, yeah. like, when they get really overwhelmed and a freak out happens and the cops are there, that was pretty much my life for like a good portion of my high school wow. career. So it sucked for me. It sucked for my family. And I think the big thing that I want people to understand is everybody kind of, I think assumes that people who struggle with addiction come from a bad home or can't do good. They don't have good people supporting them, you know, on and on things like that. I have a great family, great parents, um, middle class. My father owns a business, been successful for 30 years. Mother's a teacher. So they did absolutely everything they possibly could to help her um, up until she finally decided on her own that she was ready. It was a constant struggle for probably a good decade or more. There's still uh, some things that are side effects of that life, you know, throughout all those years, she has a daughter now that's doing great. My sister's doing great. Uh, but because of, you know, a life long of addiction, there's still some stuff being dealt with, but 
overall very uh, big change from you know 15 years ago to now. Yeah. Thanks, Tanner. Hey, Rob. Until an addict is done, nobody can help them, right? That's a fact. You know, um, I've talked to a lot of people, and actually, the, the, it's um, <laughs> it's it's the the premise of chapter one of my book. And it isn't just about addicts, but it's a major part of being an addict is um, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, look, I need your help. And the first question I'm going to ask them always is, are you done? Are you done living the way that you've been living? Are you really done? Because a lot of us as addicts have said that we're done and we really meant it in our hearts, but we just weren't really ready to take the action that backs that up. Whether it's uh, going into a rehab, I'm a firm believer in 30 days out of out of your world, whatever your world is, at least 30 days. I know people that believe in 90 days and six months and one year programs. I know some people that have proven me wrong and done successful outpatient programs, but there's got to be some assistance, professional assistance is my personal opinion, although people have proved me wrong on that. Then once we have that, we also need meetings 12-step recovery meetings, whatever that is for your category, uh, for support to learn how to build a solid foundation. It's all about the foundation of recovery. But until I actually am done living that way and living that lifestyle and putting up with less than what we really should have, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change at all. A vehicle is more than just transportation. It's what we depend on to move our most precious cargo, our families. As a service professional, you provide routine maintenance for your customer's vehicle, but what do you do if the engine, transmission, or differential fails? Contact Jasper, of course. Jasper provides your customers with a cost-effective alternative to purchasing a different vehicle. Quality, remanufactured products from Jasper Engines and Transmissions carry a nationwide warranty with up to three years, 100,000 miles, parts and labor coverage. Get your customers back on the road fast as Jasper offers immediate availability through two distribution centers and a network of 45 branch locations nationwide. If a new vehicle is not in your customer's budget and the engine or transmission in their car, truck, van, or SUV has given its last performance, a remanufactured drivetrain component from Jasper Engines and Transmissions will provide them with many years of trouble-free driving at a cost many times less than that of a new vehicle. For customer satisfaction, choose Jasper. You know, many of the industry's high-quality shops you hear from on this show have already gone through the repair pail evaluation process with an independent automotive team to ensure that their techs are trained, they use the right tools, and they have happy customers. And and in fact, over 2,200 repair shops across the nation have met quality requirements, have become repair pail certified, and are receiving new customers every month. Now, repair pail certified shops are proud to have passed their certification process, and they see the value of new customers, both from the 5 million monthly visitors to repairpail.com and their partners like CarMax and the tow program. What is nice is that shops can cancel anytime, so that makes repair pail work hard to ensure that you see the real value of the program. I encourage you to visit RepairPail.com slash shops. Learn how you can become RepairPail certified and connect with new customers every month. Do we have addicts working for us in the aftermarket and we don't know about it? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why we're here. We're here to get this story told. I, I will, I, you know, I told my panel, I have no experience here. So I'm here to learn. We're also here to share and get the word out. So how, how do we know? How do we find that out? I'll I'll tell you a funny story. When I first got hired in the automotive world out of rehab, 
everybody in that shop was in recovery and we had an, a kind of an ongoing joke that in order to work there, you had to have the seven step memorized and no driver's license <laughs> because all of us were in the beginning stages of recovery. And it's not uncommon in our industry to have that going on at different stages. Some people in the beginning stages, some people like us with 15, 11, 7, 3, 20 years re- recovered. It's uh, very common, actually. Yeah. And you may not know, and it may not matter because we're kind of limiting the talk about addiction to drug or substance abuse, but it's far more wide ranging than that. And That's even right. some substance substance abuse or dependency is not what we would call, um, I don't want to say not harmful, but it doesn't affect uh, your ability to work or function. You know, caffeine addictions, you know, people that they do not function until they get a pot of coffee in them, right? They just, they can't get going as you're sipping your coffee. It's two of them. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you may have a germaphobe, you know, where we're getting into a, a phobia, but it's, I guess where I'm going with this is the where I started to take a turn was looking at science. That's where I go running to, to try to understand something. And what the amazing thing with science is that it starts uniting things. And what you're, what we're, they're finding is that addiction is starting to share a lot of traits, both um, just behaviorally, but also like wiring in your brain with such things as uh, OCD, phobias, and um, Tourette syndrome. Uh, to, it's pretty interesting when you think about somebody with Tourette syndrome, they talk about their tics as almost an overwhelming need to do whatever that movement is or say whatever word. And the more they focus on not doing it, the more they can't resist. And finally, they just let it happen and do it. And that's not unlike uh, an addict's brain seeking out whatever that um, source of pleasure or source of the rush is, whether it's a substance, whether it's shopping, you know, the text going on the tool truck. Uh, It could be um, gambling, sex, video games. You know, the list is long. Uh, when we start worrying about it is when it affects your ability to perform daily tasks or uh, care about uh, people, probably people in your job over this um, action or activity. Yeah. Tanner, should we be drug testing? I think we kind of have to. Um, my reasoning for that is more along the lines of, if the person is open with you and says that they're going through a program, uh, as Rob said, you need to make sure that they're done. And hopefully, you know, they can come out and say, yes, I'm done and mean it. But knowing that they may be struggling with it, I think if they're drug tested and you can prove to yourself that they're clean, or if they're not, then be able to offer to them and say, you know, hey, you failed the drug test or whatever you saw on it, I'm still willing to help you. I think you need to be able to know the person that you're hiring, um, know their background and a simple drug test is something that can kind of, I guess, start that conversation and kind of, it obviously is going to protect the shop, but the bigger thing to me is helping that person. I, uh, I guess I'd want to throw out a word of caution because I'm not sure. I think it varies by state what you can do. Oh. And, so you don't you'd want to check with that. You'd want to check state law or uh, regulations on how you can how and if you can administer drug testing. Yeah. Um, I think oh, the best you thing you can do is have stuff in the employee handbook and post it on the wall that you have a drug-free workplace 
And I think most places of employment, most businesses are protected to ask for a drug test once a year through a, a medical physical. Um, if there's an accident, somebody, either the, the individual gets hurt or somebody, a coworker gets hurt, then you can ask for a drug test. Uh, and then you have to have probable cause, right? You, you have to have a good reason to ask somebody to take a drug test. But again, it's very state. I think it goes very um, much state by state. Yeah. And maybe what, like Tanner's saying, maybe you almost have an agreement with this person that it's okay. And that would be different, of course. Yeah. I, the biggest thing I think is just that you're trying to help that person stay on track. So you're not doing it to be a nuisance, to be yeah. you know, constantly reminding them. It's something that you want to make sure that that person doesn't fall off the wagon. He or she does fall off the wagon. You catch it you know, quickly so that you can continue to help them and continue to guide yeah. them down the correct path. And, and what I'm going to say is not easy. I'm not saying I, I don't want to imply I even know what I'm talking about, but usually the relapse occurs long before they take in the, the substance or do the, the activity. Agreed. And that's, that would be important to try to be aware of that. And I know I'm speaking very vaguely, but the best you can do is try to study up, talk to addicts, uh, talk to people involved in treatment or the recovery community to start learning uh, a couple of signals. And it may not be calling for a drug test. It might be just having a conversation with the person and finding out that their life is in complete disarray and their, their learned behavior then to cope is, you know, what drives their addiction, not something that maybe us, you know, normies uh, would do. Yeah. So the, 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 the descent into relapse starts long before they, they actually reach for the, you know, we're, we're speaking almost primarily about uh, drugs or uh, chemicals here. So before they reach for the chemical, they've already started the process of relapse. Agreed. And I think that comes down to two, getting to know that person. One of the things I had written down as a note is trying to understand the person's past and getting to know them, uh, whether you call when you hire them, call character references, not just professional. So you can really get an idea of their life and what they're like and, you know, maybe things that they enjoy doing so that you can start to see those signs prior. Because if you know nothing about the person at all and you just hire them and they're an employee, it's going to be a lot harder to see that and compared to if you're invested. Thank you. I love where this is going. And, and, and I think we, I want to stay in this area because I'm here listening and I'm concerned. How do I know that person that I'm interviewing or that person that has been working for us for a while is going into relapse. And um, do we have enough HR training to help me? Do I, as a, uh, a normie, I guess, know what to do, what to look for, you know, what to observe? Rob, um, and, and, I, and I want you to, to help me lead this. And, have, and another question that I have for you, and I have a lot of questions, but I want to kind of move in this direction. Have you ever hired uh, a recovering um, addict? I have. Um, because I'm so open with my story, open enough to write a book about it, but even prior to that, I've been, uh, I've been uh, written about in Ratchet and Wrench magazine about our story as well. So a lot of people are familiar with our story. So even during the interview process, it'll come up. 
about how transparent I am and how they knew about my story prior to even applying for the job. So they'll share, they'll be transparent that they've been through that or they're going through that. It's amazing to me how often that we'll have that conversation in an interview. Um, But I will tell you, no different than, you know, a lot of us measure KPIs and performance indicators for our guys in the shop, whether it's advisors, whether it's technicians. You can't relapse back into that world and not have it affect your performance at work. So it's you. there's usually a lot of signs that you can see where really just a normal sit down that you would have with any employee saying, hey, your numbers, your efficiency as a technician, your uh, your closing ratio as an advisor, those numbers have really dropped recently. Is there, is, is there something going on that, that I can help you with? Is there something we should be talking about? And if you've got enough if you've got a, if you or your manager, in my case, it's a manager, has a good enough relationship with that uh, employee, usually it's going to come out, or they're just going to mask it and 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 play the denial game, which eventually you're going to have to call them on it anyways, right? It's obvious. I'm learning, and it's apparent that there's something going on, and you can't ignore it. I mean, that's your point. It's the no, easiest I, thing to do, isn't it? Is ignore it and hope it goes away, but that never happens. <laughs> and I, I definitely want to hear from Eric because he hasn't gotten to say much. But I think what Tanner and Rob are talking good. about, <laughs> Tanner and Rob are talking about is something called bonding. And you're trying to forward, form a bond with this person. And really, we, we do it with everybody. But if you can form a bond with this person, um, a lot of times there's some people that would argue we shouldn't call addiction addiction. We should call it bonding because they've bonded with a substance or an activity rather than people. And if you can bond with a person and create a bond, that's, that's going to take precedence over um, the, the addiction or the, the behavior. So Agreed. I think what they're, what they're talking about is very, very important. And, you, you know, it's kind of something you want to do with all your employees, right? I mean, or coworkers, employees, everybody, you want to have, you want to have a bond. And that comes down to creating a good work atmosphere. You want to have an atmosphere where everybody gets along. It's like a family. Everybody's watching out for each other and, and see, like Rob said, you know, watching indicators of even just work being turned out, you can see. And if you're a tech working next to, you know, another guy that you're, uh, bay buddy, as I call him, or bay neighbor, you know, you can see that. And if it's in a family atmosphere, hopefully, you've created a relationship with that person to where you can reach out and help them. And I think yep. uh, for this particular, somebody that is recovering, I think a family atmosphere is certainly something uh, that they need. Some of them, obviously, like I said before, have a good family at home, but that doesn't mean that they're close with that family because of yeah. everything that's gone on. So yeah. they can always use a support net. You get to know pretty people pretty well. Let's face it. I think we're around our coworkers and our employees more than our family. Yes. You get to know them better than our families and their behaviors. And so it's noticeable. Like Matt said, there should be some sort of a drug testing program if your state allows it. Talk to an attorney about that. It's difficult in California now, especially where smoking weed is uh, is legal. Right. Yeah. So some real gray areas that they're still trying to figure out. Eric, if, um, if I'm an owner and through observation and performance, I discover that a team member of mine ha- is a problem what do i as the owner or the supervisor do in my experience or in uh post uh treatment recovery 
I would say in my experience, you got fired, you know, you, <laughs> and you went on to the next job. I've, lit, I've, lit, I've literally gone to the tavern on Friday night and worked at a new job on Monday. <laughs> okay. And you celebrated that you got fired, right? Well, no, I mean, I, or either or, either I was dismissed and changed or I went to lunch and didn't come back. I mean, I've done a lot of that as a business owner myself now. It's, uh, it's different. I would try to reach out, um, but at the same time, um, the one thing that, not to be the throw shade on the subject or be the buzzkill on all this, but, you know, the Shangri-La of this family environment shop, you know, it's um, kind of probably like the 5 to 10% of the market. The most of, you know, technicians are work paycheck to paycheck. Um, I worked as a very functioning, high functioning alcoholic and addict. It's my best work after lunch. Um, I literally have, uh, you know, I have done some crazy things. I've actually been to the point where I couldn't physically make it home by having one eye closed and pulled into the shop parking lot. There were two dogs in the shop that I knew were going to bother me. I put myself in a customer's car that was on the lift, raised the lift all the way up and woke up in the following morning to everybody screaming, where the F is Eric? You should be here right now. Or whatever. Like somebody put the lift down and I'll come to work. Um, just absolute insane stuff that happens but i think were you fired no <laughs> no because i worked at a shop that everybody you know work hard play hard together um it was a, a community of that's kind of like there are a lot of that way you go you go not to throw shade on um training conferences you go to big training conferences and there is a lot of drinking that goes on there is yeah. uh yeah. the sherry's credit division there is a 12-step meeting um, at every vision. Um, when I went through treatment, I'm an old deadhead and, uh, I went through a 28 day program and they said to me, new faces, new places, music is a trigger. You can't go to the great, could you go to a grateful dead show and not drink or drug? And I said, well, let's show us what you know about it. The Warf Rats are a 12 step group that have met at set break at every grateful dead show since 1968. So, I am the I am uh, the antithesis of the repair community. I was told that one in twenty five would make it in my group. I was told that I would never make it, um, and myself and one other individual made it, and he relapsed and went on. And I'm just kind of stubborn that way. I got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and uh, enough was enough, as Rob said. But uh, there are a lot of it's a multifaceted thing. To Tanner's point, it's a family disease. It affects businesses. It affects families and to the how do you recognize it you could have you know if you've got rob's got obviously got good metrics on production and things like that if you're the majority of two hole three hole shops in middle america you may not know other than the yeah. guy comes in late or you got to yeah, bail him out to go to doesn't work doesn't show up <laughs> yeah. yeah i've been there yeah. done that i literally worked for a shop that myself and another individual had revoked driver's licenses and when i would be late the owner would punish me by making me drive to the county jail with no driver's license with his vehicle to get the other technician who was coming out of work release. Oh my God. I, I always used to joke that one of these days they're going to let him out and put me in. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just the craziness that goes on with it, that it's, it's just so multifaceted that people, as far as they always say addicts and alcoholics are the best liars. You know what I mean? We lie to ourselves about all of this for Absolutely. years. You know, I knew I needed help when I was 11 years old and it took till I was 27 to get help um, for what I needed. 
but again, was highly functioning, you know, drivability technician, probably didn't do this, you know, good work as I do now, but uh, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's hard to realize um, as far as the drug testing goes. What if you are, you know, just being devil's advocate, say you are a cancer patient and you're in, you know, 27 states have medicinal marijuana cards for people. Like, are you going to actually go and test somebody for a drug and say, oh, or you have recreational use? Like, you have to be able to differentiate like, hey, I had an edible at a show in Red Rocks or whatever that was perfectly legal and you're going to terminate my employment. You know what I mean? That's a different, that's always been a different thing for me. I want to go back to my question from a while back. What do we do upon discovery of a problem with an individual? I would, I would say reach out to them, but at the same time, your interventions rarely work. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, and an and a active drug addict alcoholic is a protected class in the state of California. So it's a, you've got to tread lightly and you've got to get legal involved on exactly in every, it's going to be case to case. Uh, Carm, just it's going to be case to case how you handle it. Hopefully, um, we can have a discussion where they have take some time off and get that taken care of. And naturally, we're going to help them. That's that's where I'm driving toward, Rob. Naturally, we're going to help them. How? Well, that's you know, I know of a lot of programs and resources that we have available, some of them free and some of them covered by our medical insurance. But uh, again, they've got to be done. If they play the denial card like you're full of it and that's not true and that's not happening, then you can't help them. Which and is more the norm, right? Yeah. More absolutely. often than not. And as far absolutely. as the recovery community goes, that's like paid paid prisons, right? That like everybody's outsourcing jails or whatever to third party people. It is big business to have in the recovery community for twenty-eight day programs and thirty-day programs. And if you don't have the insurance to do it. I was lucky enough that I had been fired for a, from a job and I went through on a dollar a day. Other than that, like if you were self-pay, it can be $25,000, $50,000. It's very expensive nowadays. When I went through um, the rehab that I went to, Valley Hope, they have locations all around the com- country. I happened to go through in Arizona. They did. They allowed you to do a payment plan, believe it or not. But back then it was seven grand. I think the same program now is 15. So yeah, it's not cheap for that 30-day program. But we're also talking about a foundation that works. You need a good foundation. Uh, without a foundation, uh, you're building your house on sand and it's going to fall. So do you have an EAP there? Say that again? Do you use it or do you have an EAP as part of your um, benefits package? Employee assistance program. Yeah, thank you. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Gotcha. And I, I believe um, that the, the um, payback on that's significant. For $1 invested, you get like $4 that goes towards something that might go towards treatment, maybe. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I have not heard of that program as part of our medical, but I'll investigate that. That's a great option. Yeah, that's, that's worth checking into. We have a lot of free resources uh, in our area. Some of them are 30 days, some of them are six months, and some of them are one year. And everybody's situation is going to be different. One of the key things that I think is very important is that you do recognize it as early as possible. Really, the main thing is the safety of the people, the, the individual and the people that work around them, if we're talking a technician especially. Very, very important. Agreed. And I think Rob alluded to it earlier. It, it this sounds cruel, but it's their addiction. And it's tough, tough love, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it's rough. But you 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 have to walk this line between supporting their recovery versus enabling their addiction. 
and protecting and then, the business and the right, people. Right, you have to protect the business them. and your Absolutely. other employees. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, oh, I'm finished. I, I was just going to say, Eric alluded to something earlier that's pretty important and, and I think critical to talk about is the success rate for us addicts is, is not very good, at least the first time around, second time around, third time. I happen to be one of the rare individuals that got it the first time. That's just by the grace of God. I cannot tell you how many people, have, I, mean, I, I know people, I have 19 years clean, God willing, this year will be 20, but the people that I went through rehab with that have 12 and 11 and 15 and seven all had to go back out and continue to write their story for a little while. Now they've got it, but they didn't get it at the same time I got it. We went through rehab at the same time. So honestly, the success rate is less than 10%, Absolutely. less than 10%. And what's amazing, and I will mention this, faith-based Christ-centered programs is over 80%. It is what it is. I'm just stating 80% fact. So success rate? 80% or above success rate in Teen Challenge and others like Teen Challenge that are uh, national, that are, again, Christ-centered, faith-based. They're success. And now they do have a one-year separate you from your world program. You don't talk to anybody for that's in your world for, I think, 90 days. You're not allowed phone privileges. I mean, they have a, a very, very strict uh, program uh, in order to accomplish that, but the results are there. The results don't lie. Do you have to have the right atmosphere, the right uh, culture inside the company so that a recovering addict feels safe? I think it doesn't hurt. Um, and I think, you know, having something set up to reward them as they go and continue to help them as they go, you know, can't hurt either. I think anything that you can possibly do to try to help that person, obviously, like Eric said, it's definitely rare in the automotive community. I mean, we see it driving around. We can see the good shops and bad shops, and we know what the majority is. So it's certainly um, not the norm. But I think if you have somebody there that's struggling, I think that's something that you should consider trying to make sure of, that you have a good atmosphere and that you're doing something to continue to help that person, whether it's uh, celebrating you know, a year uh, you know, a year sober, you know, two years sober, whatever it may be. And whether maybe you give them a raise or something throughout that year, you know, when the year's over, I don't know, something to help that person. But I definitely think a good atmosphere uh, can't hurt. And the atmosphere might be just respecting the um, their their issue, their disease that, you know, the Christmas party isn't at a bar. Exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, Very, and yeah. maybe fellow employees aren't always ridiculing the addict, you know, because Great point. a year or two ago they fell off the wagon for a while, went to treatment, came back. They're struggling, but they're a productive employee and all that. They're they're a good employee. They had an issue, but your your other uh employees aren't on always leveraging that against them. That that's I would think is vastly more important than Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, some uh, like I think Eric said Shangri-La, you know, it's more <laughs> just respect, a little bit of respect. And I think that comes with that the stigma of addiction is this misunderstanding of what it is. Matthew, you just mentioned don't have a, a, a party at a bar. But what about the opioid crisis? Well, it's definitely growing. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's the entryway. A lot of times isn't just, you know, hey, what do you got that's better than this? Uh, a lot of it's medical. They start out yes. with pain pills. 
Um, my knee out, little white soccer. Yep. And high school soccer players from Naperville, Illinois, not Puerto Rican, you know, minority street addicts shooting heroin, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. don't want to imply that everybody that takes pain pills will become addicted to them. But there is a segment of people that the way their brains are wired will become dependent on that. Um, Absolutely. And over time, the hooks dig deeper and deeper. And then when the, the prescription runs out, now they're going on the street and they usually start out getting the prescription. If they're getting Vicodin and now they're no longer getting Vicodin for legal prescription, they're going to the street and they're getting Vicodin. Yeah. And then one day they're going to the dealer and the dealer's like, man, why do you spend so much money on bikes? Try some of this. It's the same thing. They're not completely wrong, but that's, that's the entryway to heroin. Of course. It is. Yep. And you know, now you have the addict, you have the, the wiring already for an addictive, I don't want to say personality, but an, an addiction. That's- and now you're feeding it this beast. Um, it's a rough, it is a really tough uh, to hoe to get out of that. Uh, people that do it, are they're just warriors. Uh, I, any of them, really. I always I, equated it to a bee sting. That like some people can go and have one beer after work and go, hey, I got to go home to my family. And there's the other person that has one that's going to turn it into 40 and maybe make it to work, but I'm driving home drunk. Um, I always looked at it as a bee sting. And there's some people get stung by a bee, get a little small, oh, that kind of hurt. I get a little welt in my arm. And there's other people that go into anaphylactic shock. Sure. Both a bee sting. It's just how the chemical process of your body and your brain, you know, I know I have a compulsive personality that like manifests itself in many things, scan tools and, um, you know, absolutely OCD behavior, things like that. Yep, um, yep. And it's just a matter of like channeling it to a point, but it's, it's very, I don't know. The thing that it is that we have such a low success rate at it. I would say that, yes, you, as a shop, you have to try to promote that culture, but at the same time, you have to protect yourself because, you know, it's, it's, it's epidemic. I really believe that in this country, you could go eeny, meeny, miny, mo. like every third house, somebody has something that they're either addicted to, they have, they deal with addiction first rate, or they have family members, or they have coworkers, or they had a parent. And it, it is, it is an epidemic in this country that is never addressed and people don't talk about it. I'll tell anybody, <laughs> anybody that wants to know, anybody that wants to hear about it. I find myself, I've actually introduced myself to, hi, I'm Eric. I'm an alcoholic. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just, I'm, I'm Eric. Long I'm the meeting. business Long owner. Yeah. And I yeah. If I say, if it comes out of my mouth and some will say like, why did you tell me that? And I said, if it comes out of my mouth at least once a day that I can't talk myself into doing something else. The one I'm, thing about the opiate. Seven years for me this May. God, from, God willing. God the one you. thing with the opiates is opiate users have resources that many other addicts do not have. And there's, uh, medication-assisted treatments that work really, really well to give these people their lives back. Granted, they're exchanging one addiction for another, but they can go on a methadone or a suboxone, and now they can be functional. They get their life back. They don't. There's no more. Uh, well, without a massive doses to get the euphoric um, reaction from using whatever the drug of choice was, the opiate was, they can take this stuff, get their life back, have a job, have their family back, uh, all these things. So 
if somebody is on a medication-assisted treatment program, I don't know if I'd be frowning on it. I would be very happy about it. Because uh, it really stacks the odds in their favor. Drug screen. What's that? How do you have a clean drug screen if you're on, you know, an opiate like methadone, suboxone, I, something like that, you know? Yeah, I think but the screen can come questions. back. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the whole good drug point. screen thing. Good and point. I hope this is a good time to drop this or talk about this. And then I'll, I got to go to the background, I think. Our, our brains are really amazing um, machines, biochemical machines. The reason we're here, the reason that we're dominating the planet is because of uh, our prejudices and our uh, reward system. And today we're talking about the reward system, our brain reward system. And there's a big argument between the medical side of things and the uh, scientific, like the neurobiologists, about if this is a real disease or if this is something with neuroplasticity. But this is our reward system. We're built to get a chemical dose of reward, primarily probably dopamine. When we do something that benefits us greatly, we eat something that's uh, high, highly nutritious caloric value, you know, fatty foods, um, sugar, salt, big rewards. Same thing with sex. The, they take a brain image of somebody in the midst of orgasm versus somebody getting high on heroin. It's almost a mirror image. Okay. So we have this reward system built in. And now we have a disorder, whether it's a kind of a disfiguration, whatever you want to call it, a disease that, um, amplifies that need. And because we're so smart, we've now created ways that instead of getting that reward from the hunt that led to the kill that fed the village, I can do this synthetically by inhaling this, injecting that. And not only does the chemical reproduce this, this feeling, it does things to the brain that makes it need more. This is the, this is the battle these addicts fight is some so wiring issues and then what the chemicals they're taking in or the behaviors they're doing affects their brain, the way it actively rewires the brain. So Carm, you might fancy yourself a pretty good driver, but if we took you to New York and put you in a cab, your brain would be wired a certain way and you would react a certain way. But in a few weeks, it's old hat. No problem. You've learned how to drive. You, your body changes. Your brain changes. You're saying that I get rewired based on my experiences, experiences and that's no different than the drug addiction? There's not as much difference as you think. There's a lot of parallels. What do you got to say about all that, Rob? Well, that's pretty deep, isn't it? Certainly, we can get accustomed to anything and allow, you know, um, I would... One of the chapters of my book talks about the law of exposure, right? What I and, and it's as reliable as the law of gravity. So what I expose myself to, I shall become. If I hang around bank robbers, I'm going to become a bank robber. If I hang around cowboys, I'm going to become a cowboy. If I hang around God-fearing Christian men that want to do the best that they can with their family and their lives, then I'm going to become a God-fearing Christian man that wants to do the best he can with his family and his life. So... Uh, and it's so important that we continue to expose ourselves to those positive things because our brains are wired with that. I'm with like that. I'm I'm with Matt 100%. I've I've learned that yeah, I can go to a bar, I can be around alcohol, I can be around people smoking weed. I've, I'm past that point in my life, but why risk it? 
why even be around that and allow that to become normal or acceptable? Again, for me, we talk about a Christmas party. We have non-alcoholic Christmas parties just because of that fact, not just the liability, because I don't want to be the the um, the tool that allows my people to start being exposed to the atmosphere and considers and considers it normal. That's just my thinking because it's not normal for me. I know what it will do for me. I'm just one drink away from being a, a, stati- a statistic like the rest of them. <laughs> Rob, you uh, you you decided to be done, and I think you were standing in front of or sitting down in front of your parole officer. And, <laughs> That's right. You know, and, and it's it's very early on in the book. And that, and that was the, that was the moment that, that hit you. Could you take us to that? I was sitting and it was probation intake and at probation intake, they give you a big thick packet of papers that you fill out. You want to, they want to know about your life history, your drug history, your work history and family history, domestic violence. And I, I was at a fork in the road, wasn't I? I was at a fork in the road where I was going to continue to try and lie and and play this game that I played and very likely end up getting called on the probation and doing the two years in prison because I couldn't sustain that if I kept doing what I was doing or I was going to fill it out honestly. And with the crack pipe still warm in my pocket, I decided that I was done. And I filled out that uh, that packet with complete honesty and transparency, knowing that after I turned it in, she could come back in and revoke my probation. She didn't. She, God bless her. She came in and said, come on in my office. And she's very sarcastically said to me, well, I guess we don't need, I, I had been awake for three days doing dope prior to this meeting. I couldn't stay clean and sober. So she, and I put that on the packet and she said to me, um, well, I don't, I guess we don't need to waste our money on a drug test, do we? And, uh, and we started that very day getting my life back in order. Rob, did you throw the crack pipe away? <laughs> I did. I threw the crack pipe on the way to recovery about a block away to show my wife I was serious. I threw the crack pipe out the window. And uh, when we got to the rehab, I sat there in fear and chain smoked while my wife went inside and told them we were there. She came back to the car and there I was on one knee with my with my head planted in the passenger seat floorboard area, uh, burning my fingers and burning my lips, trying to smoke what was left of that broken crack pipe to get one more hit before I finally surrendered. And by the grace of God, I stood up and surrendered and walked into that rehab. That's all in chapter one and two. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, great book. How, how does anyone get a chance to read that book? You know, my book is Addicted to Life. How I Went from Homeless to Extraordinary Success and Happiness in a Short Period of Time. You can get it on Amazon. Just search for my last name, R-O-W-S-E-L-L, Rosell, or Addicted to Life. You'll be able to find us, 25 bucks, including shipping. It's, a, it's, the, it's the best million dollars that you'll buy for uh, 25 bucks this, this year, 2019. I will tell you, for those of you that aren't addicts, the first half, half of each chapter is about my story. The second half of each chapter is for even for normies. It talks about the principles of success that I use to get out of that lifestyle and how we all can utilize those principles of success to go to the next level, whatever that level is for each and every one of us. And you said you're going to be a vision too, correct? I'll be at Vision. I have so, a booth, a vendor's booth there to uh, actually distribute booths, as, uh, books as well. Thank you for reminding me that I'll be there, my friend. <laughs> welcome. I wanted everybody to know they could stop by and meet you. Absolutely. I think that Come by and say hello. That'll be fun. That's a great point, uh, Tanner. And uh, this, is a, this is an epidemic, and it's going on bigger than I think any of us know. Um, 
Agreed. And and Rob, by just you being there, uh, not there to sell your book, but there to probably give advice and to put an arm around someone, um, you know, mano to mano, is a great thing. So thanks for that. I want to have each of you uh, do a quick summary for us. So let's go around the room. Eric, anything, any final words? thing I would say would be to the still, um, I kind of didn't do all 12 steps of the 12-step recovery. I uh, pick and choose a few. Like I said, I did it all the wrong way um, by um, a lot of people's standards. Um, yeah. There are people, there's a group here to, um, that is a agnostic atheistic club that has the most sobriety out of any AA club in this city. And they are the most bunch of godless uh, people, but there is deep sobriety in there. So that is not just all one cookie cutter solution to it. Uh, I believe in a higher power that restored myself to sanity. Um, but that's just me. There are, I would say never give up. If you are a person that is in the depths of your depravity, there is always a way out you got to believe in yourself. The thing that the other thing that a lot of people fall into the category um, is that there is some moral shortcoming. Like there is something spiritually wrong with you that you are morally or spiritually bankrupt because you're an addict or an alcoholic. And like Matt said, you know, there's a lot of science behind this and that uh, I am living proof that um, there is life after substance abuse and uh like i said i will be celebrating my 27th year god willing uh later this year thank god you did it because if not i would not have known you eric oh that's a fact i'd i'd have been dead many years ago so i've always looked at this as my second chance in life and uh i just kind of switched my compulsions or whatever to uh working on cars diagnosing cars and um to the community that I'm around, you know what I mean? The company you keep, there is something to be said there. Um, you surround yourself with strong people. And uh, my mother, God rest her soul, was very involved in Al-Anon for years, well after myself. My mom and dad were divorced, gotten divorced after 33 years of being married. My mom went through this epiphany from, we, we called the Enlightenment, to where it went from being Sally Super Catholic to, uh, hey, honey, you want another beer? To, like, questioning everything. Everybody had a problem. And we, both my brother and myself, my uncle and my dad was long gone, were sober many, many years. My mom would still go to multiple Al-Anon meetings a week. And I was like, why do you do it? And she said, it presupposes that I go because of you when I go for myself. So it is a family disease. And for people that don't understand the enabling, that fine line that Matt talked about, there is help um, that 12 step isn't just for people that are in recovery or of recovery. There are people of substance abuse. There is 12 step support groups for Alateen, Al-Anon for family members that you realize that it is a family disease that goes generations deep in my family. By the way, congrats to your recovery. Thank you for being here and so honest and transparent with us. Appreciate that. Tanner. How I roll. (laughs) First thing I want to do is thank Eric because if it wasn't for him being around myself and everyone else in our group wouldn't know what we do today. So, and he's a big reason we continue to go to training. Uh, as far as my closing statements, I want to remind everybody, as Eric said, it's a family disease. So 
you're not only helping the addict, but if you can help them stay clean and help them beat the disease, you could potentially help the entire family and make everything better for them. Um, relationships in that family, everything as a whole. So you can really help a large amount of people by helping just one. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. Well, first of all, I want to thank all everybody that's on this panel. Great contributions, great input. I think um, two things. Number one is the, that same negative energy that just destroys an addict's life pointed in the right direction. They can do amazing, amazing, amazing things there. What uh, Eric alluded to is a OCD or what, whether it's just focus, whether it's driven, whatever you want to call it, they, they have that. They just need to get it focused in the right direction. Number two is um, my wife of 20 years, who's never used a drink or drug in her life, lived that homeless drug addict lifestyle with me through all of that. She's now reaping the rewards of her faith. Uh, it's all talked about pretty heavily in the book, and it isn't plug for the book. My point is, is this is a family disease, 100%. And by healing the addict, it's amazing the healing that takes place in the family. So that is very important. So I'm glad that was brought up as well. And thank you for being open and honest and transparent, Rob. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Matt, I'll give you the last word. You're a normie. One whole word. <clears throat> I think I used them all. Um, I guess, honestly, a couple things. One is, you know, I was talking about our brains being machines. We run programs. Look around you. Watch how people act. They're running programs. Yeah, yeah. And how those programs are created, that would be a whole other episode or 10. Um, but that uh, understand that there's more going on than just a lack of willpower or like uh, Ra, everybody really has said that it's not a, a corruption of a, a person. It's there's, there's, there is an issue. Uh, and I kind of wanted to say something when Eric said something about cancer, if you had an employee who had to go to treatment, stop working for cancer to get treatment, how would you feel about them? Now let's take the same person, no cancer, but an addiction, and they have to leave to go get treatment. Your perception of that is vastly different, and it might have to change a little bit. Uh, and then I guess a closing statement would be for everybody, addicts, normies alike, that uh, the, the easy part really of recovery sobriety is initially stopping using that um, chemical, that substance, or doing that activity. The hard part is now living life without it. And it's a battle. It is a day-to-day -day battle, isn't it? And the, they always say the 10% is the drinking, 90% is the thinking. You know what I mean? And the one thing that you can always realize with an addict and an alcoholic, I'll try to keep it as G-rated, the addict-alcoholic's favorite two words are F it, you know? And it's always, you know... Everything is so catastrophically like you would not believe the bad luck that is in, that is you know befallen me. Pour me, pour me, pour me another drink, right? But uh, like I said, there's uh, a lot of science to what Matt says that uh, you know. And the other thing is, is we chronically underfund mental health. The jails yes. are filled with people. We arrest addicts. We don't arrest the addiction. Yeah, you know, and they don't treat them, and they, and we didn't even bring Absolutely that up. Not. You know, yeah, we didn't. Yeah, that's a whole show in itself. Untreated mental illness, driving people to self-medicate. We yep, didn't even yep. touch that. Yep. Each and every Town Hall Academy goes places I never expect. 
especially with me, right? Well, yeah, especially with Eric. <laughs> so thank you all Gotta for being... Got to ride being, along. <laughs> thank you, Matt Fonslow, Eric Ziegler, Rob Rousel, and uh, Tanner Brand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carm, for shining a light on this very important subject. And Thanks, thank guys. you, panel. Have a great weekend. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks. Have a Bye. good day, everybody. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.